Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of their work and discuss how and why they wrote it. This week's guest is Tom Segura. Tom is known for his podcasts, uh, most notably Your Mom's House with his wife, fellow comedian Christina P., and Two Bears, One Cave with his best friend slash past Good One guest, Bert Kreischer. Also, he has a new book of essays and stories I'd like to play alone, but Tom is best known for his four Netflix specials, uh, and counting, I should say. Uh, he, he, it was just announced he has two more coming out on the platform. You know, Along with Bill Burr, John Mulaney, and Ali Wong, Tom is one of the platform's big success stories. He went from like a decent-sized club act to being able to play freaking basketball arenas, all just from these specials for the most part. So the joke we're going to focus on, Racial Fight, is from the third of those specials, 2018's Disgraceful. Uh, should be noted, as the name of the bit suggests, it involves Tom observing a fairly intense violent interaction. So here is Tom Segura. I saw a racial fight recently, which is terrible, but I watched it. <laughs> How are you not going to watch? You're going to watch every fight, you know? Fights have that weird quality. Fights are kind of like hand jobs and that like you don't really want one but you're like let's see where it goes you know like (laughs) will you give it a kiss no all right so yeah (laughs) had to take a shot so i'm in philadelphia walking through the park in the middle of the day beautiful day in philly beautiful park i'm walking through this park and as i'm walking through it i see a white guy and he yells across the park to a black guy, he calls him a nerd. And when you hear that and you're in public, you're like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. That's your first thought. And then another black guy, I don't know if he lived in the bushes, but he popped out of the bushes. like. If this is a bush right here, I just saw a black guy go, uh-uh, no. <laughs> Not in my park, uh-uh. But it's like, no one else saw that guy. Only I was like, oh my God, I see that guy! Like that. 
And it became my own personal movie. I watched him line up like the honey badger. He was like, that one? All right. And he fucking, he sprinted across the park and he tackled the white guy. So instinctively, I just went, get him! But it took me a second to realize I'm the only other white guy in the park. Yeah, so like 10 black people turned and I went, no! Him, him. Our him. And they were like, what? And I was like, I'm out. That's what. And then they killed that white guy. And for the record, I don't give a fuck if they did. You know why? There is no such thing as white guy loyalty, okay? I mean, there is, but those guys are obvious as they hold torches, but the rest of us... The rest of us are not having that shit. And let me tell you something, man. I'm jealous of interracial loyalty, because I see it. You know, if you're white, you see it with other races. Asians, you see it with black people, for sure. What I'm talking about, there could be a dangerous situation. Let's say it's a fight, and there's a black guy in that fight. And then another black guy that doesn't know him will go, I'm going to involve myself. <laughs> Just on account of us being of the same race. At our core, we are brothers. I see that, I'm like, wow. Because when you're white and you're in that situation, you're like, fuck that guy. I don't know. <laughs> do whatever you want to him. I don't give a shit. Let you do something like that guy in the park and then look at me like, hey man, are you gonna help out? You should know something. You're about to get murdered, okay? <laughs> I will fucking take pictures as you're beaten and upload them, hashtag honky, hashtag dead honky. Fuck you, cracker, I'm out of here. Now, I am here with Tom Segura. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So uh, it's November 18th, 2016, uh, 10 days after the presidential election. You're in Rittenhouse Square, which is a very lovely park in Philadelphia. Uh, you post on Instagram that you tried and failed to catch a fight on camera. Um, yes. So I, I guess let's start. What is the sort of non-comedy version of the story? Like, what were you doing? What did you observe? It was kind of wild. I mean, I, um, I had walked from a hotel in that area um, down to the there's a, a street that runs I, I forget the name of it that's a very commercial shopping kind of area mm -hmm. and I was walking I think towards it um, through that park which is a very yeah. nice park it's a Lovely. very nice park um, and there was a lot of activity so I noticed um some things going on like people and you know i'm just just kind of like it was great people watching yeah yeah and what i noticed was this guy who was walking away from people but turning and yelling mm -hmm. and i couldn't tell like i couldn't tell if he was a, a homeless guy at first because he was just kind of really screaming and you're like oh is it just somebody kind of wild you know out yeah. of it um, but then I, as I got closer, I started to walk towards it. Um, <laughs> I see that he actually seems like kind of put together and he keeps turning and yelling back. And, and then, and this is in, and this is like 
one in the afternoon or something. I mean, it's like, it's pretty bright. He screams the N word at what is a, like a group of black dudes. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) And these guys who are closer to him go start going towards him. And then a dude who like it, it comically sounds like I think I remember I saying I used to this dude came out of the bushes, but there's all yeah. these bushes there. Yeah. And this dude basically like it felt felt like he appeared from one, but he like jumped over one and they ran towards this guy and kind of sort of jumped him, but he went, but he actually went backwards over mm-hmm. another set of bushes, like going back like this. And I mean, he could have gotten stomped out, but, you know, they kind of fucked him up a little bit. And then people actually uh, from like within this own group. Yeah. yeah. Him back. But, n- you know, nobody was going to intervene anyway. Like, <laughs> was like, you're on your own, dude. Um, and yeah, it was so dramatic. And like one of those life moments that you can't believe you're witnessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he eventually got up kept yelling I don't know, new things, fuck yeah. yous and all this stuff. And people told him, you know, don't come back here in a, in a not so friendly way. Um, and then I just stood there and was like, I had to like soak in what I had just witnessed, which I have to say, uh, seeing a whole altercation like that does get your adrenaline really going. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, you're just like, you know, you're you're uh, you're in a bit of a state of shock. But you're also putting it together, like yeah. the pieces of it. And like, I wish I had been there for what happened in the moments right mm. before that. Yeah. Um, but it was so wild. It was all I could, you know, think about. I think I was calling people after that. Like, you're not going to believe what I just saw. Um, and then I remember I, 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 I talked about it on stage. You know that night yeah because you're like on stage just just you saw it where you're like you're even thinking about like this is a joke or more like the wildest thing just happened yeah to me, like in your city like that. just like that just like the what and i think also you know you don't know foreign cities meaning cities that you don't reside in as well obviously as its inhabitants and yeah. so there was a layer of it that was even funnier to the people in philly because i'm talking about Rittenhouse Square, which is like upscale. Yeah. So I, I think it was like everybody was expecting this the violent episode to take place in in another part of the city. So when I say that, that people were like, you saw that in Rittenhouse Square? <laughs> um like, well, yeah, man. Um, but it, you know, that's one of the fun, that's one of the things about doing stand-up. Um is that if you stay in your room too much, mm. you'll never see something. That, that's the 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 motivation to, all, to leave your room like nothing nothing that crazy is going to happen in your room but if you actually enter society and see things and do things you know things were things are going to happen like you need yeah. things to talk about so that was like one of those things where um i i'm pretty sure i i probably opened talking about that that night um because it was just 
Yeah, it was just insane. Even hearing you tell the story, the thing that jumped out of me is that you're like, you saw something happen and you're like, and then I walked towards it, right? I think there's some people who'd be like, yeah, I should like not be in this situation, but you're like, something's happening here. And I, <laughs> I mean, we always have our own internal gauge for walk towards or walk away. <laughs> I was still a safe distance. I wasn't yeah. like, I mean, I definitely wanted to make sure that like, hey, this white guy is not with that white guy. It was it was a, a far enough distance from that. But it was still like, yeah, I was drifting slowly towards mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So you you bring it up in Philadelphia, partly because like you're processing it, maybe being like there's something funny here. But like, especially after doing it then, what what are you noticing that you makes to be like, this is a, this is a thing that I keep on need to need to work on? Like, what is the thing that that is jumping out of you that's like oh this is beyond just something i'm going to talk about right now uh as in, in reference to like that actual story yeah yeah it's it definitely has a lot to do with the fun of telling a story yeah so a lot of times you know sometimes you'll do something or something will happen in a day and you're performing mm. and so you go that night and you you go you you, you tell it and, and you tell yeah. it in, in its rawest form which is usually not you know not polished and the audience, you know, that's how, why it's such an interesting art form is that the audience informs you. It's like the yeah. way they react to something is part of the excitement of doing a bit and a story. And, and sometimes you get a little bit from them or you get a pop at one moment. And, and there's, there's something about that whole experience that makes you go, oh, there's something here. Like yeah. There's something to um to further go here i remember just it was a story that was fun to perform mm. it was fun to to actually i don't remember how i how i started that story now because it's been yeah. a number of years but i do remember i i would have so much fun uh being the black guy that came out of the bushes like the when you're doing an hour on stage, yeah. you you actually have moments that you look forward to as a performer. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you go like, you know, it's coming up and you're, in your head, a small part of your head's like, this is, this is fun. Like this yeah. is the, it's like, it's our version of like a guitar solo. And I, I used to love coming up. And I think I used to go to be the black, I said like the black, guy was like, mm -mm, no, <laughs> like not in my neighborhood, not in my park or something. And it was always such a fun thing to do. Yeah. And then through performing it, uh, it's, it's the type of bit that I love or a story that I love is that um, where the story, it's, the story could be just, I saw a fight. Yeah. And this is what happened. But it leads to further observations. Yeah. And those are the golden story. Those are the stories that you live for because then the story has meaning. Yeah. A, a story that's just a story can still be really funny. It could be like, I tell this story, I saw this fight, I saw this reaction, and everybody laughs, and they go, that's that's hilarious, mm -hmm. and that's kind of where it ends. But, you know, it took a while of telling that story to make the observation about, like, to me, the, the, the fun of that was making the observation that nobody, not only did nobody help this white guy, but that in general, no white guy is going to help another white guy. Yeah. And that to me was like, oh, now telling the story actually has a, a little deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's like the that's the thrill in stand up is when you 
find stories that you pull more out of. Yeah. Did was that all on stage? Like that re- realization and like is your writing process and the process for this all like I'm telling the story on stage and through telling it, I'm writing all of it, I'm doing all of it, and also making the realization? Or is there any part that you're, you know, do you run it through your heads or you're doing anything on paper? Like, you know? It's mostly, I mean, I I I mostly do things on stage. Punch-ups can happen sometimes off stage when you go like this moment needs something mm-hmm. so you do you definitely do a lot of thinking probably some pen to paper um i have to say for myself and i think for everybody that avoids pen to paper there is a big <laughs> advantage to the moment like when you actually yeah. do it you realize that you can get um something good out of putting pen to paper um yeah um but you know with that particular one I remember that I would tell that story and those other observations came through the process of telling it. Yeah. And then by continuing to tell it, you would get to like more details and more jokes within mm-hmm. it. But it was, it was a process of figuring it out, Yeah. which is, it's fun to have, have to figure it out, like get to a point where you feel like, oh, it kind of dissolved here. What mm-hmm. else can I, how can I lift it back up? And that was one that, that I enjoyed, like just putting together. Yeah. Um, obviously it wasn't written this way, but I want to go through it in order and we can see what you can remember of like how it came together. I also okay. have, have it printed out. So if you want any oh, reminder, okay. if, there's this website uh, called Scraps from the Loft that for whatever reason transcribes specials. I have no idea what their mission is, but okay, it's a great resources. If you're listening, whoever you are, who makes that website. Uh, so the first thing I want to ask you about is sort of where it lands in the set. So it's like right after the chunk where you essentially talk about like the words you there's these words you can't use anymore, but you can oh, yes. use all the words like it's a free raid on uh, slurs against white people. So you might be sitting in your seat now going like, well, Tom, what can we still say? What can we say? I'll tell you what you can say. White racial slurs all of them let her rip cracker mick kraut polak frog guinea wop honky have fun say them all you want and if you're not white and you're going wait are you saying that i can say those that's exactly what i'm saying nobody cares call up your italian friend tomorrow and be like hey you fucking guinea and he'll go, <laughs> I don't care. I don't, care. <laughs> I don't give a shit. It's not a historically disenfranchised group. The best slur of all for me, I think, is honky. I'll tell you why. The word honky is hilarious <laughs> in and of itself. But for some reason, truly racist white people have latched onto that word. It's like this great indicator to know if someone's racist. If they act like that word is offensive, run, okay? (laughs) You don't believe me, watch the news. Next time there's some like racial fight in the news, they'll find some hillbilly. Like, what happened? He'll be like, well, he called me a honky. (laughs) And they're like, and did you pass out from laughing hysterically or what happened next? He's like, no, I stabbed him. And you're like, oh shit, that's fucking crazy. I wouldn't, I'll pay you to call me a honky. I don't care. It's a great word. 
Uh, oh, that's right. Right. Yes. Is can you think about just tying those two things together? Because that this well, joke yeah. has a lot of callbacks to this. Which is why I think I'm. I like this even more. Is that that is another layer to it. So, I like the fact that there's like seeds planted that lead you into the racial fight story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like that definitely. I think I remember actually even having a conversation once with somebody. I don't know if it was like in media or something talking about this asking me something about it and i was like oh that's not the whole that's not the mm -hmm. whole bit though and they said no it is and i go no 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 because the bit before it is part of that bit it's just yeah. it's just disguised as a separate bit but you need that for the whole thing to play together so they were that's what it was it was it might have been even like a track listing thing with like yeah. um with like the you know the audio people i was like no 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 this is part of that like you you can't separate it. Yeah. So what made me laugh so much about that is that was a time and, and it was 2016 where you were hearing more people, older people say things. I remember I've had conversations even then about like, what about like someone calling me a honky? I'm like, what are you fucking serious? Like, do you not laugh hysterically if somebody calls you a honky? Like who, who is offended? And and these people would put on this like fake yeah, yeah. outrage of like, call me a honky. I'm going to call you something back. I'm like, well, you're on your own, but <laughs> like, um, like it's so laughable to me that anybody's offended by any of those things. I mean, I don't know. I've heard some Irish guys be like, Hey, yo, it's super disrespectful. You know, call me a Mick or something. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't care. <laughs> like I'll call you one. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, all that definitely was fun. It was fun to explore what uh, slurs actually exist. I remember looking up actually in that time. So that's kind of the fun, like when you feel like you're putting some yeah. research into it, into like all the slurs and and some that are just um, absolutely like, like not just so awful, but um, when you find like the origin of a, mm -hmm. of a like the etymology of something you're like oh my god like they're all rooted in just the, the worst things and then the other ones are like like really stupid you know yeah. like um i don't know i'm trying to remember there was this italian one where it was like and they called us like fish heads because we used to work in the fish market I'm like, fuck like and the guy was like and it's you know he was making this plea about how it's not okay and i was like oh okay yeah yeah so the the opening line is i saw a racial flight re uh, i saw a racial fight recently which is terrible but i watched it so like ah uh, yeah what why that line and in general how do you think about when opening stories like the sort of cadence you're like you're hey this is going to be a story and not just like i'm doing a bit about a thing yeah, I get asked a lot about storytelling because I um, <clears throat> I tell a lot of stories. Sure, yeah. Um, um, and I always say that the 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 two most important things if you're a storytelling comedian are why you told the story, like why are you telling it? Yeah, just ask yourself why you're telling it, and what is your way in? Because the way in sets up the value of like the story, like 
that one right there um, is is a very clean setup. Yeah. Um, it's also coming out of the like racial jokes you tell. I don't remember, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's coming. So like I'm, I'm discussing race and then it's a, it's, it's showing you like to an audience we're on that topic. Like I, we, we discussed race. I saw racial fight. It heightens the, the, like the, the tension of what, cause like mm-hmm. that, that'd be dramatic, obviously. Um, and then it was terrible because that is terrible, but you should know that I'm going to give you a report yeah, yeah. now because I watched the whole thing. Um, also, I feel like fights are like almost like car accidents where like you're probably not going to turn your head. You know, yeah. you're, you're going to observe it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then sets up your relationship to it. So people understand like what they're in for. I mean, because the, the next right. joke is like, you you don't want to watch fights. You got you're going to do it like you have to do it and you compare it to hand jobs. Yeah. I mean, it's a silly joke, but yeah. Um, I would say yeah, I probably should have worded it like you don't want to be involved with one um, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you'd want so, you want something else. <laughs> um, but, yeah, let, let's see where it goes. Hopefully this hand job leads to more and hopefully this fight leads to me not being a part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The so the after that you have what is it's a small part, but it's like one of my favorite parts of this joke, which is so you bring up the hand job thing. There's a laugh. And then, then you you go like, we give it a kiss. And then no, all right, like it's just like a throw oh, away. Yeah, yeah, a little throwaway thing of like, would you? No, yeah. okay. I do feel like that's one of my favorite things about your standup is, especially as you've gotten more experience, you're more willing to throw away little things. Um, and also, it's like, it's really sweet. Like even though this joke, like hypothetically, it's like taking a fight and a sexual circumstance. You're like, it's yeah. like a cute little. Yeah, my friend Kirk Fox uh, calls it creepy with a twinkle. <laughs> It's like you're saying something semi creepy, but they don't go, you're a creep, right? Because your your demeanor, like you said, is kind of sweet about it. Yeah. So they like the audience goes with you. I'm like, oh yeah. He's trying to get his dick kissed. That's cute. Like they laugh at it. I was reading your book and you talk about being a sweet person, like thinking of yourself as a sweet person. There's a part about uh crying when watching Millionaire Matchmaker and stuff like that. Is that something that you try to make sure is represented on stage? Like cause your Demeter can be a little bit there's a cynical or whatever on stage to have be like, I want to make sure they also know that I'm like a nice, a nice boy. I feel like the times when it comes through are coming through um, without effort. Yeah. And I think there are times because, you know, we, we, I do so many shows as most like working comedians do. Yeah. And it's an interesting point to make because I think that, you could probably make an effort to do those things, but I don't. Um, and I think what happens is it's just like in life where there are people who meet you in life and their experience with you is one thing. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are shows where I'm sure people have seen me and they're like, that guy's very abrasive and, you know, he's upset about something. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then like, you know, the next night it's like, you're a different person. Yeah. Even though you're delivering maybe the same show. And you come across as sweet. And so I think inside of me, I, I am a, a, a somewhat sweet guy. And so it does come through a lot. But I do yeah. feel like that I'm not. Um, I don't feel like I'm consciously saying like trying to do that. I feel like yeah. it's coming out in a more authentic way when it does come out. Yeah. 
That makes sense. So uh, the joke goes on and you describe the beautiful day as a way to build up. You hear someone say and then you sort of like mumble through the N word. Yeah. I assume that moment you're like, okay, so I need to give some weight to what he says. But also, like, I'm not like just going to start screaming the N word right now. Fuck no. (laughs) And that was um, another. Now that you say it, I I literally have not thought about this in, in a number of years. But that was another fun thing to do. Like we're talking about the fun of performing yeah. a bit would be a fun thing to do like every night when I was telling that when I was doing that bit is to go like, and then he screamed, but I go, yeah. then he said, nah. and I would like, <laughs> and it was funny because part of your brain, I remember goes like, well, people know what I'm doing. Yeah. And they always knew. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, yeah. always knew. And it would always get huge laughs, which was like, those are the fun things where sometimes you go, does this, will this work? And then you're like, oh, it works perfectly. Yeah. Like they, the audience, the, when you go, they, he screamed, the audience is like, oh, I know what he screamed. Yeah. Yeah. So then you just have to be like, yeah. Yeah. Because, and you're, and yeah, you're, you know, there's like a real buildup because it's like, and then he screamed and they're like, oh, like, oh my God, you can feel them like tense up. And then you are relieving them of the burden of screaming the N word by yeah. going <laughs> yeah. like that. And they're all like, cool, man. Thank you. <laughs> I guess that's, it is interesting. Cause it's like, especially at this point of your career, you know, this is a few years ago, these people are fans, but there's some people who might seem some special and a little part of them is like, is he a comedian who in this joke is the type of comedian who might actually just say the N word, the yeah. actually say it out loud. Now they're also, you know, it's a funny thing to, 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 to discuss too, is that it's weird how culture and everything shifts. I think, and this might be a reach for some people, but there was a, there was a time maybe like mid two thousands into the 2010s where you could, you could be white, say the N word in a joke, not like, yeah, like, um, Hey man, I'm sick of these N words. But yeah, like yeah, yeah. if you, you're, uh, you're referencing the word yeah you're quoting or like you know it, it would be like you or you'd say it like in a almost like in a daring way but not like in order to like abuse somebody right like not as a slur yeah yeah like have the use the word and it would be it would it would it would be seen as like daring and taboo i saw a number of comedians do it yeah who, who it didn't register as this guy is being racist um, and I feel like that sh- the shift away from that happened kind of during the Trump presidency. Yeah. And, and it's what you point that out where like, I, I don't think I would have said it without that uh, saying w- without that political climate. Yeah. But like, I mean, as part of this joke, because it's it is much to me, much funnier to be like, I'm not saying it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it is interesting how they're like now in 2022. Not only would it not anybody say that, nobody really that's like somewhat together even come close to saying yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah. or other words because it is just a the things shift everything yeah. shifts usually I think in like five year chunks every five years you feel I always point out this one thing that I used to see in the beginning of when I did stand up and like in the very early stages where like if a comedian was on stage. And there were um, two men in the front row. 
he a comedian i saw this so many times would be like uh hey like what are you guys uh, are you guys gay <laughs> and i laughed just because i what that's when i started going to comedy shows with my friends and every single time for the front row it's like you guys are gay gay guys you, like, got, you guys gay <laughs> and the audience a lot of audiences would laugh and you'd be sitting there and be like all it is is uh just just guys together yeah. um but a few you know like it does not that long ago and it's like a few years go by yes you you um gay rights become a bigger issue and gay marriage becomes this hot button issue and then gay people are married and having kids and, and you know so that ha and now if like comedians on stage and and like uh two guys are there and he's like what are you guys gay like you could just imagine them being like yeah and they're like okay <laughs> like wait wait was that the joke yeah um but yeah so no but the the the, the n-word thing was like it was it was part of I don't want to say acceptable. It was like kind of like in this daring pool yeah. that people would tap into. And I've seen zero of that. No, everyone's like, nah. Yeah. No, I remember. No, I know exactly. I like, I, I can think of certain comedians that it was a thing they did. And they're, and, and it's also, this is around time. Some people are doing like ironic racism type stuff. So that also allowed them to be like, the joke is how I wouldn't say it or that I know it's bad, but it's still like, good dude. I have to point this out. I did it in, in my first album. So that that's 2009. I recorded it came out in 2010. I had a bit uh, comparing um, the N word and uh, the word midget. Mm. And uh, it was before fucking Mulaney's because people have been like, Oh, John Mulaney did that bit. And I'm like, mine came out before his. Um, and uh just relax. Um, but I, I referenced it as a quote. I referenced it as the, as the little person saying yeah. it to me. Um, now, here's the difference. The, everybody would be, I mean, it would, it would be silent in the room. But then I had a joke immediately afterwards that mm. would murder to pull that pull yeah. the pin out of that the difference is though today not only is it like dated and everything i would never do that joke yeah i would never do that bit yeah yeah and i don't know and I, I, I think it's you noted i don't think you're thinking like oh, i missed that bit or the no i'm not like god <laughs> yeah. damn it man why can't we just my favorite thing that like i've heard so many old white guys say uh um, cause I love to get to tell them that is when they go, I don't understand why they can say it and we can't. And my response to, to that is like, yes, you do. <laughs> like you do understand you need zero explanation. You're pretending that you don't understand because you're begging for this opportunity right now. So funny. Um, so, uh, so the joke thing goes to the act out, um, yeah. And so it's like, you go like, imagine this is a bush, which is just the stool, which is an interesting way of using a stool. So then you just like yeah. lower. So for those yeah. who haven't seen it or just heard the joke, Tom Segura takes his body yes. and then goes behind a stool and then just comes up and then does uh, yes. the voice. I think I also lo 
can I tell you another reason I also love doing that is that I'm not a very physical comedian. Yeah, I was going to ask. So when you are used to basically standing in a three foot diameter, any little bit of physical movement becomes big to the audience and to you. Yeah. So to, to me, that's almost like doing a fucking cartwheel, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so I think audiences would like that are seeing me would be like, react really big to it and to me it was like one of those few moments where i was actually doing something physical um Mm -hmm. because that that is physical comedy it's it's yeah it's the act of like lowering yourself and moving up like the laugh would come from that slow pop that i would do up and having the guy go like "Mm -mm, no (laughs) like yeah not my part yeah which still makes me laugh it's funny how did you how do you feel about when you're doing voices? Uh-huh. The like to do a in this case a black voice. You know, you have done voices. I don't know where you are now with doing voices. How how do you think about it or approach it or feel about it? I'm very comfortable, extremely comfortable doing voices of people that are not me and don't look like me. If I feel like I'm giving it an authentic um like flair or 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 touch to it in other words i don't try to do um like caricature stuff yeah the biggest exaggeration i do is of my mother who has Mm -hmm. a heavy accent and i'm almost like making fun of her by doing that but it's it's my mother yeah so i'm like i'm trying to make her sound worse but i've done like black guy voices in my acts for years and I really have had a lot of endorsements of it because mm. of the fact that I feel like that um, it it's at least as authentic sounding as, as it can be. And what you're saying, it's like not just like the tone and like the mm. inflection, but if the words that you're saying sound genuine, in other words, that you're you're giving it a genuine, authentic feel to it so that they go, that doesn't sound like you're not it's not you're not making a mockery of the fact that you're doing this impression Mm -hmm. of somebody that isn't you. I try not to be like um, intimidated by the fact that I like shouldn't do someone's voice. Yeah. And you're not doing it in the vein of I'm doing it because I shouldn't be doing it. You're just doing it. No, because like that's the it's that's the character in the story. Like Mm -hmm. it feels weird to me. I mean, you could make jokes about it, I guess you could be like, you know, this Asian guy was like, hey, don't stand there. And then you can make a comment and be like, I mean, he doesn't sound like that. Yeah, yeah. Just for everybody knows, but I'm not going to do it because I know, you know, and you start making jokes about the fact that, you know, you shouldn't be doing his voice. Well, you know. Yeah, um, it's hard. that's hard because that joke is cheating because that joke you're you're di- you didn't do it just to set up the joke about how you didn't do the voice. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so then the joke goes back seemingly on purpose to your perspective of what's happening. You have a joke about just watching the person doing it. And then it becomes more internal about like processing to sort of set up the part where like um, there's a back and forth where like the 10 black people turn to you and you're like, and you sort of do this sort of play act. You're like, no, I'm not going to do it. Talk about sort of that part of what you're, how did that play out? Because it is a funny it's it's all sort of in the scene. It's like there's no hard punchlines. It's just sort of like kind of being in it. Well, I mean, what I was trying to do that, like, because obviously I'm dramatizing and then and, and 
like heightening things for the story, but yeah. um, trying to make clear that get him meaning all like our him is like the all of us, the everybody here. That's him. It's yeah. not my him. It's not. You know, I'm not I'm not on his side saying get him, meaning the guy that tackled him. It's our him, um, meaning that we all know what was right and what who was wrong in this situation. Yeah. Um, and that was just fun to get like audiences. I mean, audiences would like really come together with that bit. I think that was yeah. kind of the the fun oh, interesting. of of that bit is that everybody knew that the white dude was wrong. And we would play out. I'm telling this full story to everybody about it. And everybody's like, they don't know exactly where the story is going. That part of the story would create some tension. Yeah. Yeah. Say, get them. And like, and I go, uh, and then it occurred to me, I'm the only white guy there. And so every, so people in the audience who would be like, Oh, like, is this, is this where things are going to turn South? For yeah, you? yeah. And then I would be like, no, not him, him, not mm-hmm. our him, not my him. Um, yeah, so that would that would um I feel like that part of the story would further like bring the crowd on yeah, yeah, yeah. not just paint the picture of what's happening, but they would also realize that I know what is right and wrong. Yeah. You know, um, and it it's funny because you don't think about this sometimes, but those moments help you build trust with the audience further into your set. Yeah, yeah. So later on in your set, you can say more fucked up things like in the name of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And they go, we trust this guy mm. because we already believe that he's a good guy. Like yeah. he's shown us that he's, he knows what is right and wrong. It also sets up like the, the point of this joke and the theme of the joke is loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you're essentially like showing loyalty as a concept before you then like get into like tiling people about the idea of loyalty like truly this is the last part before you then go into like the thesis of the point yes you're right because the the part of what you're seeing there is that those 10 black guys all they're seeing is that that one black guy tackled the white dude Mm -hmm. and then they're just like let's go let's get involved (laughs) yeah yeah And then I'm the other, I'm the white guy there who's like, yeah, I'm the other white guy. And I'm just like, I'm not, not only am I not going to get involved in this, I'm making it clear that I'm never getting involved yeah, um, yeah. in, in any white guy drama, because mm-hmm. I think most white guys that are in some shit probably <laughs> fucking earned it. So it is a great setup for that premise. Yeah. Know? It's interesting. You go like, there isn't any white guy loyalty. You don't, you don't go, why isn't there? There's not a question. It's sort of stated a fact. It's like a very Chris Rock. If you said it three times in a row, it like would be how Chris Rock would set yeah, up. Right. You're <laughs> like right. There. It's not. No. And it's like, yeah. and then you could keep on coming back to it. But um, talk about when you sort of locked into sort of the exact idea. And then when you have that idea, how you want to sort of then go forward with it. When you've, you're like story builds this idea. Now we have the idea section of it. Yeah. It is the thrill of doing stand-up is that you think you're done with um something yeah which was just telling this like story i just i saw some crazy shit you tell this story and it's full of laughs so it you feel like i did what i'm supposed to do as a comedian yeah i told a story and it got a bunch of laughs but it um it at, at the time i think i had never sometimes there's things that are you've thought about before but you've never articulated 
Yeah, yeah. And and when you articulate them, it's kind of like a rush. And I guess I, in my head or my in my experience, I had never heard somebody say there's no such thing as white guy loyalty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it happened on stage very naturally, which was also part of the thrill, which was like, there's no way I was going to get involved in this. And not because like we weren't going to win the fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because I don't give a fuck about that guy. Um, and so it's like when I realize, like I'm thinking that, but then when I say it, I go, oh yeah. And then I thought about how many times I have seen specifically really black eye loyalty. Yeah. Um, meaning like black dudes who are not familiar with each other getting involved. Like I've seen this in my own life, like help a brother out, like, yeah, like yeah. actually getting involved um, in some shit. They don't like, they don't even know. They're just like, I'm gonna help this dude out in this situation. You could go through the layers of, of, you know, why that is and the reality of it, but it became a great, just setup point to discuss to make jokes yep. about is that that exists it exists in other cultures i mean i've seen it in in latin culture too like i have a a lot of latin family and friends and i've seen that happen i've seen it happen with language barriers where people just go i'm going to help this person out based on their their lack of maybe speaking english mm. i've seen it in asian culture and it's funny that <laughs> Basically, the one of the jokes there is that, well, it does exist in white guy culture, but only in like the worst of us. Yeah. yeah. So like the worst white guys will support other awful white guys. Yeah. Um, and so that is a as a comedian is a thrill to feel like you're you're touching on something that is true. You're articulating a thought you haven't either expressed or heard before. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're presenting it in, in joke forms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the best part of it is that it gives like everything before it more meaning. Yeah. Meaning. And that's what I, I've told like other people who other comedians have asked me about like storytelling. And I'm like, look, you know, there's a lot of things you could about telling a story. But when you give a story meaning, like a reason for telling the story, it raises the value of the story. Yeah. In an hour long set, it allows the audience, especially after they leave, to know that's that story becomes a bigger thing. Yeah. Because it has so much more psychic weight. Cause it's like, oh, this was a thing about that. I now can like replay all of it with sort of the context of it. Yeah. And I would get, you know, sent so many messages and I mean, people would tag me from Rittenhouse Square. People would um whenever there was anything kind of racial in the news people would send me like like no white guy loyalty <laughs> like they would just you know yeah. send me those messages so i knew it had taken on like some weight on its own of like it had it had some meaning for people how you then set it up it's really interesting you sort of describe what it's like what do you have observed and you talk about the different cultures and you sort of it's you don't even lay out what it's like what you observed with black guys because you're just sort of like it's not a joke. You just sort of there's like at our core, we are brothers and it sort of yeah. plays as a non joke. Yeah. To then set up the contrast. Do you do right. you think of it like was that intentional? Like, actually, I don't want to yes. like undercut this. I, I that's, that's definitely on purpose. And it's one of the things that like I think, you know, the more. Prog like the more sophisticated, I hate to say I'm sophisticated, but 
the more sophisticated you get as a comedian, meaning like you're more comfortable yeah. with moments and phrases and words that don't, that aren't funny. And that yeah. sounds like, like, what are you talking? Why would you want that? But when you are comfortable with a moment of silence or saying something that isn't funny, I mean, it's with a, you're doing it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. You're just comfortable enough to go like this moment isn't funny, but it's going to get me somewhere funny. And yeah, yeah that was definitely on purpose was to lay out very clearly that um, what I see, what I have observed is that this loyalty amongst black dudes is genuine mm-hmm. and real. And, and it's, it's important to not make that funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the rest of it works because you made a clear point that isn't funny on purpose. Yeah. No, it's great. And then, so then you get to the end, which sort of just pays out of just constantly berating this white guy and how little you care about. I get Yeah. It's like, I mean, I see, you know, I'm on tour and I'm, I'm everywhere and you, you know, there's always some fuckhead uh, white guy at like a show or after and like fucking off doing something stupid and that'll still play through my head where it's like i don't give a shit about this guy who's getting arrested for fucking smacking some chicken like fuck him i don't care about him um so yeah i I wanted to make it clear how little i cared about about my brother um, (laughs) you know who was in this case you know starting shit with people is that i was wondering because like it's one thing to be like, I hope he gets beat up. But over and over again in this joke, three times you mentioned how you hope this guy was beaten to death. Like you hope he was murdered. <laughs> well, yeah, but that is, um, you know, that's like the fun of being on stage with a microphone. Yeah. Is that like, if you ask me on a witness stand, like the, the truth is I would also, for the joke, say on a witness stand, yes, I would also hope. The reality is I don't want that guy beaten to death. Sure, yeah. um, I think that would, that would be sad and terrible. Um, I mean, he's probably a pretty bad guy, but whatever. But the, the fun of being on stage is saying wild, reckless shit. So look, sometimes you're wrong with how reckless you get. Mm. Right. But you don't know how to toe the lines of it. So in this case, it's not even that risky. What I, in my point of view, what I'm saying, which is that like, fuck this guy, you know, I I hope he's beaten to death or whatever, because I'm just, what I'm really trying to do there is punch up how little my, there is loyalty. Yeah. There's so, there's so little loyalty that I don't care if he's murdered, (laughs) you know, set him on fucking fire. I don't give a shit. Yeah. So the, the very end is you go like hashtag, hashtag dead honky fuck you cracker i'm out of here which is sort of i guess you said calling back to the sort of previous it's calling back yeah in general how do you think about endings when it's going to be a story so you know it's like okay it needs to be at a pause break because i need to like you know yeah it's it's one of the things about stories where you tell stories and i've had this debate with comedians too about what if the end of your story what if your story is amazing like a great story let's say yeah and very funny and full of huge laughs except the end like what if the end i always use like the one to ten scale what if you have like a bunch of like nines and tens and then your story ends on like a six 
like it just feels like such a letdown mm. um and and i've heard different perspectives most people even in comedy are like it's still great like it's great keep the story keep it but there is this party that never wants to stop searching for um an ending that has like more of a pop yeah you yeah know? sometimes you just don't find it so yeah i mean you you're never i don't think you're ever going to get everything you want out of anything but um but on on those stories yeah it's it's a constant search for the ending the yeah. ending is like you want the perfect punchline or at least this this um revelation or something something that makes you go like all right, that's an end. Yeah. You know? Callbacks are a good way to for the audience to be like triggered into like a thing is ending. This, yes. this. So that's why it makes sense here. And that's why there's tons of callbacks at the end of specials. Um, and then it fell out of favor and then it sort of has come back a bit. But because you can only once, I feel like once in your career, you can do, and that's the end of the story, like the sort of right. non-end. But you yes. don't do that once before people are like, it's a crutch. You got, you got, yeah, you can do, and that's, that's that. That's the end of that. Um, callbacks. Callbacks, I think, are great if they're skillfully used and not overused. Yeah. Um, you know, you can overdo callbacks, and then you're like, all right, you're just, that's the device you just keep using. Yeah. Um, I like them spread out and, and a few um it's fun like if, if you can make it playful especially if the callback feels organic yeah when the when it's a when it's a when it's a callback that you didn't have to muscle in yeah it's a it's a fun way to do one it's almost like if you gave the audience a second they would also get yeah. to it like yeah. you want it to feel like a, a moment of we're in this together you're also putting on this show i know i'm only talking but like because you're listening yeah, you this joke works. This joke right. only works because you've been listening. So we're you know it's a connection moment. But if you're just throwing them out, it it sort of yeah. like cheapens it. And I guess the criticism of that, you know, you could be like, oh, if if I did this one on its own without the stuff before it, it wouldn't work. Yeah, you're like oh shit, like I should probably <laughs> it's, it's write funny. something else. I, I it's you know it's all up to taste. We'll be right back with more Tom Segura. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to Wikihole, you'd learn that that's the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called 
writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. And now we're back with Tom Segura. I feel like one of the things I want to talk about in terms of like informing the the perspective of this joke is uh, your experience of whiteness. And specifically, you alluded to, but your mother is Peruvian, but you always call yourself white. You're always like, I'm a white guy. Yeah. But I imagine that still gives you a somewhat outsider perspective on whiteness because you you moved a lot. You would spend summers in Peru. Do you feel like you have a perspective on whiteness that's sure influenced? Yeah, I mean, I, I I actually get to experience the world um, in some ways through two lenses, you know, um, where like as a kid and as a, whatever, as everyone just sees a white face. Yeah. Um, and then people who know me know I have like this Latin side um, to some of them. Um, I'm like, they'll always like I have friends that introduce me as Spanish. They'll be like, this is Tom. He's Spanish. And I'm like. <laughs> Okay. Um, uh, and so like, and some of them see that as a huge, um, benefit, like, they're yeah. like, like, it's almost like why the, one of the reasons they're like, that's why you're welcome here is that mm-hmm. you're, you have this diversity mm-hmm. that no one can see, but we know is inside, um, which I understand, you know, I yeah. mean, I, I, I get it. Um, yeah. And I've, you know, I've been able to, like, I get to navigate the world in the, the, the easiest way, which yeah. is like, a white male um you have all the advantages that the world gives us um and it's great yeah it's fucking super easy but yeah it's funny because my mother had we used to have tell her like we'd be like well you know you're not white and she's like what are you talking about and we're like you're not white and she's like of course i am and we're like no you're not mm-hmm. um because she actually she would put probably Hispanic or whatever. Um, she she's like when I she goes when I was in Peru, I'm considered white, and I'm like yeah, but like here you're not. Mm. And she also has like a more a little more like an olive complexion to her. Um, and I've and it's funny because there's things you never think about. Like my father was super white, like a white white American guy, but you know I've seen people treat my mother differently um it's very strange it's a very strange uh thing because it so doesn't register to you until you're actually witnessing it you know Mm. i've seen people treat her differently um because of her accent and it's it's a like it's very sobering in the moment uh yeah it kind of snaps you out of the normalcy of like what you're used to every day to be like, yeah. holy shit. That's yeah. So I mean, weird. yeah, it's why I ask. Cause it's like this joke has both the perspective of being a white guy and the perspective of like seeing how white guys act with white guys and being like, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not like, I, yeah, I do feel like I'm not that white guy. In other words, yeah. my, like, I get that I'm white. People say a uh, present, they'll be like, you present white. Um, and I totally get that. I also feel like there's like a different 
group of white guys that are like white white guys that i'm like yeah i'm not them mm-hmm. like those dudes are a, a separate class from me i i have i have too much flavor in my background to be like that le- like when i went to college and it was like the the white white southern dudes that were uh pledging fraternities that's like the highest form of white kid and i was like i'm not in that category yeah that's that that i would separate that's almost like you're categorized i was like i that i'm not i'm not that did i mean do you talk about race very conversationally in your act a good amount you know like not like you're doing a lot of jokes about races you're sort of like it is a topic that you acknowledge do you feel like that experience is from that perspective that you're like you've you have seen it and it's a thing that you've noticed and don't are comfortable addressing because it is something that you're like aware of in that way. I just feel like it's part of life. It's like, I talk about my kids a lot now because I have kids yeah. and like, it's like, if you have kids, it's weird to not make any observe, like make any commentary about it. Um, yeah. Race is universal. It is. It's part of our history. It's part of everyday life. It's yeah. Just, it's reality. It's like talking about, sex or so you're like this is just part of the world so why would i not talk about it you know yeah uh side note i feel like a few years ago is announced you're going to do a bilingual special or you're going to do two yeah. birds. are you still going to do that i don't think so only because i got the offer to do it and we had to set up a tour and because the, like they were like when do you want to do it i was like hey man you know when i do a english special i have run that hour fucking 150 200 times and that's that's what it deserves yeah like i'm I'm gonna record it and they're like when do you want to shoot it i'm like after i have run this thing in spanish fucking at least 50 (laughs) times right yeah yeah. so we set up the tour and it was all set to be to go on and the tour was starting in um february of 2020 and then i was able to do a couple in like March and April, places that stayed open during yeah. the pandemic. But then as as it progressed, most of the tour couldn't happen. Yeah. And then the English speaking tour like was naturally coming back on. So it was just what they ended up telling me is they're like, if you want to do one in the future, we're open to it. But it, it would have been recorded already. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if if everything hadn't happened, it would have been recorded already. Is doing one at some point important to you? Like, is it something that's exciting? Like, I was really excited about it. I was really excited about it at the time. I was like missing the fact that I, I used to be really close with my um, mother's side of the family, like my Latin family, just as kids, you know, I would spend so much time there. And then my cousins would spend so much time in the States. They would come to school with us and we would Mm -hmm. go to school with them. And I just felt like that part of my life um, was really important. And then I got excited about it being kind of, you know, reignited united yeah and i started to do the podcast in spanish i started doing these shows in spanish i'm hanging out with latin people like all the time going on the road with them and it was very fun it was really exciting to have that back um and yeah and and it did make me feel like kind of closer to that side of my roots and like my mother's side um but you know you don't predict like a global pandemic (laughs) sure well actually you, you do have you know you have a joke like 
five years yeah. ago, you're like, I, I think soon we're going to be all stuck at home yeah. forever. Yeah. Oh, I got tagged a hundred thousand yeah, yeah. times. Yeah, in yeah. that. Do what I like to do it. I would love, I would, I've always wanted to do something in Spanish. So yeah. meaning like I've always wanted to either work um, in Spanish, you know, um, as an actor, as a comedian, as something. So at some point, I hope I get to do something in Spanish. I think it'd be mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Um, you have a joke in mostly stories where you start by saying, uh, if you're white, do you ever get tired for being blamed for every racial injustice? And there's part of the audience who's like cheering and then you turn it back on them. Let me ask you this. If you're white, aren't you a little tired of being blamed for every racial injustice? Like, doesn't part of you... Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. So... People are like, what the fuck? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Like, don't you kind of want to tell like the other people, like, hey, why didn't your group get their shit together? And then you can ascend to the top and then you can oppress other people. <laughs> Not as many claps on that one. Well, uh... Oops. When you do yeah. jokes about this, it's part of it to find the people in your audience who might be that white guy. Yes. It is so fun to do that. It is so fun to kind of trick somebody into revealing who they are. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things to would like as a kid is sometimes you'd have your friends, one of their parents or whatever, or even now actually. And now it's like, you know, I'm an adult and like my friend's parents are like in their seventies and like you hear like a, a hint of a prejudice and what are you going to do? Are you going to lecture like a 75 year old? Like what I'll do is I'll be like, yeah, I know what you're saying. And then like, I just go like, right. And then, and see like where they go with it mm-hmm. because you just go like, this is just like an old guy. I'm just going to let him be old and say crazy shit. Um, on stage. It's, it's fun to call them out. That's the yeah. difference is a one-on-one you're just going to let somebody show you who they are. But on stage, when people cheer at the wrong stuff, it's very fun. <laughs> I mean, like, do you think about like what they then thought about the show? Like, do you imagine they go home? It's like, Tom sucks. Tom, I thought Tom was a guy like me. Oh, no. In those moments, I don't care. I mean, I will. I've mocked them mercilessly. Uh, spe- like, I've had those moments actually become bigger not yeah. every night but sometimes it's somebody who gets very mad about the fact that i'm mocking them for something terrible um and in those moments no it's a thrill and like i i don't care if that person is like <laughs> i hate tom now yeah yeah it's fine um you know th- this is from the special disgraceful which uh, i believe you talk about a little bit in your book is a reference to your mom and sort of ha- things that she would say about you and your material can you can you talk a little bit about yeah. what that means I mean, she's just a traditional South American woman, meaning she came from a super Catholic, old school, conservative. You say conservative and you think of like, I think something different, like conservative value, like old school values, you know, and um, she finds me funny, but absolutely disgusting. And I could not enjoy that more like i i love upsetting her so much it's 
it is the greatest it is the the greatest joy to for me to see her upset about and she's like all you say is if if and you talk a porno and discuss and like and the, the more that she gets like that i mean the, the more it makes me laugh it makes um i'm really gonna miss her when she dies because she really really makes me laugh at that stuff man um in the book you talk about like this stuff and the sort of clips you like to play on your podcast and you say you love to see people aghast uh which i thought was a really funny way of putting it does it feel like when you're performing and you're doing a joke that you know the audience might recoil at or say does it feel like love like does it feel that same feeling of like yes. this is this is you're now we're bonding in the way that feels close to me i like it makes me feel warm i love that i love I love horrifying somebody, it, not in like the, the fact they want to stand up and leave, but yeah. to get somebody to, to, to gasp and laugh or, you know, drop their head and laugh. Like when, when there's something like that in that moment, when both things are there, it does feel very much like love. I think it's a super bonding experience yeah. to have with an audience. Yeah. Um. I'm going to bring up something and you might hate it, but bear with me. Um, there's a thing in comedy that's happened over the last six years, especially like post Trump, where certain comedians will like name their specials, like give them edgy names or like the joke is like a special name, like triggered. And they'll spend a lot of their act bragging about how edgy they are and um, how they're so challenging to an audience who seems very excited to hear them. Um, and I describe these comedians as sort of bad little boys. Mm-hmm. Um, more than like, I can't say this, but I'm going to say it. And yeah. I feel like you avoid it. Like, obviously you, it's like, it's almost like you're right up to what those people are trying to do, but you're not like indulging it and you're not self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you think it's a thing that you not intentionally avoid, but you, you know what you're doing differently to make sure it's not. So, I, uh, I think of what they're doing is a bit cornier. I definitely don't think that I'm consciously like, to me, you know, there's certain things you see in comedy where if you hear like a certain premise or topic addressed, you're like, it's it's been covered. Now. Yeah. Um, so I, um, you know, I really do try to stick to like my jokes, my observations, my stories. I try to get fuel for everything I'm saying from what's actually happening or as much as I can from my life or something that's observationally unique mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. That whole, I know what you're saying about like self-satisfied mm-hmm. things. Cause I've, I've seen it too. And you know, it's, I, you know, there's, there's an audience for it. There's not yeah, yeah, definitely. all of this stuff. Yeah. There's an audience for everything. Um, but personally, I don't think I make like a, like a, um, a, con- a real conscious effort to do. I just see feel like when something comes to mind as like, I could talk about this. If it feels like I've either heard it or I've heard it, or I've heard multiple comedians do it. You, you just automatically, you, your brain just goes, this is, this is done. This has yeah. been covered. You know, I've abandoned stuff. Um, not like this topic, but I've abandoned stuff that I was like just getting into just because I saw somebody else who's like a, a notable comedian do something so I'm like well it, like he's doing it so yeah. like I can't I can't keep doing it I try not to dive into that and what you're talking about now 
it will be completely it's it's been covered yeah and like it's going to be overdone it's probably already overdone now where it's like i'm not allowed to and so you know what i mean like i had like my own touch into it five or six years ago whatever it is now when i was just like i was already doing you can't say these words yeah so that's like in that realm so it's like i'm already i've done that yeah Right. Like, and that, that to me at the time felt fresher and like, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't heard the version of it that I was doing or whatever. Like, it didn't feel like I was like, I was doing something that I'd heard a bunch and it was fun to do those jokes. But now it's like, oh, I've already, I've already tapped, like touched on, you're not allowed to, and, and you can. So (laughs) I think, I think you're not allowed to is, is like a real hot thing right now. Yeah. Right. Like, like you're not allowed to is big because I mean, the reality is you are allowed to, um, you what you're say. not allowed to is to act like you're not like allowed. You know what I mean? Like people get really big on, you're not allowed to say this and that. It's like, dude, you can say all of those things. What happens is that like, everybody's going to yell at you and maybe that's not going to be enjoyable. Um, yeah. Like that's, that's the reality is you can definitely say the wildest shit still. It's just that people are going to fucking scream about it. And that's the new part. The yeah. meaning from like the, our, in our last 20 years, like yeah. now people are going to fucking scream at you. I feel like Ricky Gervais has made like the biggest probably splash about that. Yeah. Um, but I also genuinely feel like, I mean, he's very successful and very wealthy. And I do feel like he actually doesn't care. Yeah. There are people who say they don't care. And there are people who don't care. And it's very different. Yeah. Saying you don't care is not the same as actually not. I don't think he makes his jokes about it. Obviously, he he does a lot of like. People are upset about this and he makes his jokes, but I don't think he ever feels like he's in trouble, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think that's I feel like I tweet about him once. He immediately followed me. I do think he's like, he, yes, he, he, yeah, I feel like he might get some sort of like energy out of it. Uh, in your book, you share a story about how you had a joke about enjoying peeing on people that led to an interaction uh, with the person who took it literally. First, talk about that. And then, you know, this is a true story. Both the pee story is true, but also the story we're talking about was true. Like. Well, tell the P story first, but then also like, what does that imply for stories like this that are based in reality? Okay. Um, well, what I remember so vividly was um, when I had like 15 minutes of stand up, and you really feel like you feel like you have an hour mm-hmm. you've been, and you can I can stand up for 15 minutes and get laughs. And I, there was this girl that was in my acting class. She was fucking gorgeous. And she came to watch me do stand up when I and I did one of the the fucking whatever eight bits that I had. And it had some piss on you or pee reference. And she was like, I know what you like. And I was like, "Uh no. And she was like, yes, like you said it up there. I go, yeah, no, that's just a joke. And she was like, you don't have to be embarrassed. And it was like, Mm -hmm. so upsetting to me even then i was like i don't like i'm cool with yeah. that but i'm not into it and she wouldn't let it slide um and we went out a couple of times and she was like 
so are you going to try to piss on me from <laughs> like no i'm not and i'm it's not what i swear at this point i would just tell you what i'm into um but i i couldn't convince her mm-hmm. um otherwise that i wasn't into that and i've heard so many people who play you know armchair psychologist when they're talking to you like oh you're a comedian and then you know there's truth in every joke and you're like yeah i mean sometimes yeah it's the real truth sometimes there is or you can just be saying something that you discovered to be very funny yeah it has no truth in it whatsoever like you just say it you were fucking around or you you saw something and and you said it and like your feelings about it are not at all what you think they are it's yeah. just it's just that what we're always trying to get in this thing are laughs and whatever gets the biggest laugh is what you're going to say yeah and if it's rooted in truth hey that's great maybe it is but if it's rooted in absolutely nothing to do with truth guess what you'll probably like most comedians will will keep saying it because it gets a huge fucking laugh. That's what our drug is. The yeah. drug is the reaction. So, you know, I uh, I never pissed on that girl. Um, <laughs> I think there might have been one that I tried it. <laughs> That's not what I asked. I just want to know about truth oh. and comedy. No. Oh. But like, I do think you, what you're getting at is like, it's the same thing, like with the murdering of this person, which is like, you want the feeling of what it feels like to what you want to express is more important than literally saying the facts of how you feel about the thing. Yeah, of course. Like the, the, the emotion, the sentiment is like, I mean, if you're talking about that joke in particular, you know, there are people who would be like, you wanted him dead. You wanted him to die. Like you wanted that. You said it like you exaggerated, but you exaggerated the truth. I was like, well, yeah, the truth that I was actually exaggerating was how much I, how little I care about this. Yeah. That's the exaggeration. Yeah. The punch up of let him die is not the truth part. The truth part is I don't care what happens to him. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. Uh, Another interesting story you have in the book is about. And it's a story that you you have told on stage, but you sort of like add a little sort of more analysis on it, which is the story about a wallet you found Um, and how you've always wanted to find a wallet. Dude, I I will summarize a lot of the story because clearly you have a feeling of what you want, which is essentially like you find a wallet and your entire life you've been hoping to find a wallet because you you have these beliefs of destiny and you sort of set up how you're an optimist and you sort of have this belief of how there's meaning in the world. And then you sort of try to track down this guy and you eventually do. And the guy ends up being sort of not what you hoped him to be. Um, I do want to know, like, how do you try to maintain optimism? Like, is your act, how do you try to bring optimism to an act? Cause I do think like, as we mentioned a little bit before, like, I do think there's a lot of cynicism in, in your act. Um, and also what was your immediate reaction when I brought it up? It does feel like you still have strong feelings. My immediate reaction uh, the, my strong feeling about it is that it is, and I'm not just saying because it's, it happened to me. I, I've almost never heard a more amazing story. Like it is so unbelievable when you actually listen to or read that story that what I, to- that is not a made up or exaggerated yeah. story. I found a stranger's wallet in a cab that I shared with a woman and a year later, 
the guy whose wallet I found was my waiter at a restaurant whom I recognized from his ID <laughs> in the wallet. How that doesn't blow more people's yeah. minds is what I always go like. I To me, it's one of the most unfucking believable things that has happened. Like that guy came up to me and I literally went, Justin? And he was like, how do you know my name? And I'm like, I have your wallet. Like, it's fucking nuts to me. It's yeah. still crazy to me. Um, I think I'm actually, as much as I can be like snarky and um, cynical on stage, I think I'm genuinely and generally a pretty optimistic person. Um, I just like to believe that good things are happening and will happen yeah. as, as, as fucked up as the world is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of good in people and I have a lot of interactions are great. And I think having children also changes you. Like they're so, you know, having little, I have little kids, they're four and six. And like, they're so, they're so innocent. It's really wild how innocent young children are and they're hopeful. And they basically operate on a level of optimism like all the time, you know, the world hasn't corrupted them in that way yet. So it infects you sometimes yeah. how optimistic they can be. Um, and yeah, I just, um, I don't know. I try to live my life where I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to do something too. Like I, I, I get a lot of juice out of being involved in some creative project. So whether yeah. it's touring, writing a book, writing a script, shooting the thing, like those things keep me excited. And I think you have to go, you have to have a generally optimistic point of view to even approach and get through things like that. Yeah. If you're super pessimistic and, and, and negative, it's like, how are you going to get through a tour or a book or a script? Like you have to have kind of hope to get through those things. Yeah. In the book, there's a runner where you have interactions with celebrities on planes. And it made me think like, uh, have you been able to sort of process your own celebrity? Like, I think last night you played a venue that's like a 15,000 seat venue. Like, look, doing the math, you're like on pace where you might play Madison Square Garden in the next years if things kind of go. Uh -huh. Like, you were starting a comedy where that did not exist. Like, truly, yeah. like, theater, when you started, there, the theater acts were the most famous comedians on earth. Yeah. And now you're playing fast places where basketball teams play. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, and you're right. I mean, the whole the whole landscape changed um, where we didn't we didn't have. Yeah, the only, like everybody just wanted to be a club, a big club comp. If you're like, I could sell at a club. Then you're like on top of the world. I mean, yeah. I, that's what I thought. The actual mountaintop was because theater comics there was like four of them. There was like Carlin Cosby, Seinfeld, like, you know what I mean? Like Robin Williams. And yeah, yeah. That was it. Like Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Yeah. yeah. Th that was like the full list of who does a theater. But I mean, the internet it changed everything and it, and it made this everything more accessible. I feel like I, people around me will make me feel like I'm, uh, a bigger name than I, than I think I am. I don't feel like, I mean, I, you know, you feel like it when you're walking out onto a big stage like that. Yeah. I also have this very, and I don't think I'm being pessimistic. I think I have a very realistic view that I realize 
that some of this is very is temporary like mm. there's a there's a window in which you play enormous venues um and you don't know when the how big the window is where it starts and ends necessarily so i try to enjoy that stuff um and not really you know i still you know we we play all different sizes still like on, on this tour i mean this tour is absolutely daunting the 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 full scope of it is that we sign up for like the next tour you, uh, you'll see me on will be uh far fewer cities and probably if, if the demand is there just big venues and, yeah. and tour a lot less um but i don't know man yeah it's it's fucking nuts in the book you talk about you know at its best stand-up is intimate you mentioned that you like a 200 seat room that is though you could get to still do it a little bit like both for you as an experience and for the audience experience, what like what can you do to make it as close to that when you're playing rooms that are at times a hundred times that size? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny because when you do arenas, you both have to like remember to play up. Like, don't forget that there's somebody in the 300 section and like do this kind of thing where you're looking up. But I think what ties me into the to it in the to feel intimate is that you know they 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 dark they black out the house yeah um but you can always see like the first five rows real clearly and when you make some connections to those people in the in those rows like you actually make eye contact and play to some of them it makes the house feel smaller to you you can forget until the lights come back on how many people are there yeah you've now been doing it I guess it'd be 20 years. Is it 20 years? It is 20 years. Um, not, let's say from the, in the last 10 years, especially. So once you got to the 10 year mark, which is sort of the mark, how are you better as a comedian now? And, and how do you wish to get better? Um, well, I mean, I always admired comedians, like for me personally, that could talk about what happened that day. Mm. And when you start off doing stand-up, that is fucking terrifying. Or at least it was to me. Like, you would just go on. You're like, I have my set. And, like, I, you know, the idea of deviating from the set was wild and reckless and terrifying. Because what if I say something and it throws me off and then I don't have my jokes? So I was real excited to, to like, I think, progress to the point where I could talk about what happened yeah. today. That was always a very exciting thing to me. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm able to talk about um, some more in-depth ideas. I can share more. I'm just so much more comfortable on stage. I'm comfortable with those things that I tell you about, like yeah. pauses, um, moments of silence, saying something that isn't a joke because it'll help you set up a joke. All those things you learn over the course of like thousands of hours. Um, I mean, what I'd like to get better at, it's, it's honestly all of it. It's what keeps you doing this is like the, the thrill of coming up with something new. There's nothing as exciting to a comedian, myself included, as a new joke. I mean, I, you know, people call it like your new toy. It's like when you got a new toy and you're like, this is the shit. And like... When you come up with those, it is still a thrill. It is a yeah. thrill to say things that that get 
they get a reaction, they get a yeah. big, you know, um, a big laugh. Mm. That feeling never goes away. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for our final segment, which is called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy podcast, I call it uh, the laughing round. Okay. Cool. Shorter questions. Lightning round uh, rules apply. So okay. Don't... Okay. Uh, not real. You can take as much time as you need. Uh, do you have a favorite joke? Joke like a street joke or a dad joke or a knock knock joke um, or whatever joke comes to mind when I ask that. It's probably a better way of saying that. There, there, I just I just am reminded of of the fact that my my dad loved um, blonde jokes and Polish jokes, and um, he uh, he would just like. He would laugh so fucking hard at the worst ones. How do you know a blonde has used um, your computer? How? Is because there's white out on the screen. <laughs> he would double over, but he would double over at that. Like where you were like, oh, I get it. Yeah. He would just be like pounding a table. I'm like, how are you laughing like this? He's like, because she's so dumb. Does she put white out? I'm like, no, I, you don't have to break down. I understand. But like, how is that concept so funny? <laughs> like he, he would just laugh like that. Yeah. That's so, I have, that's, I have, I forgot about even the concept of like blondes being. Yeah. Dude. Is there a, a joke you wish you could steal? Another comedian's joke that you wish you're like, I wish I had that. Not that stealing, but you know, it's a different dimension where everything's the same, but this is your joke. You get to tell it. Or have the idea. You don't have to do it word for word. I saw um, Shane Gillis's special like uh, last year that he put on YouTube. Yeah. And it made me laugh like so hard. And it was like just like in the I mean, he was like he was it was just like material that it just didn't make it not only made me laugh, but it's like kind of feeling where you're like, I wish I I was I had said this. I wish I had this kind of stuff. Um I saw this, uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't even make sense, but like Chappelle had this story about being at a party with his son or his son calling him to be like, pick me up because I, I got yeah, yeah. fucked up. And then he's like, man, I'm at the same fucking party. Like <laughs> those types of stories too, where I was like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have that story. And like yeah. every fucking Atel joke that I've ever heard, I've always been like, damn, I wish I had that joke. Um. Do you have a short story of an interaction with a legendary comedian, living or dead, that you are willing to share with us? The best one is Robert Schimmel. Like my, mm. I don't know if you followed Bob Schimmel at all. Yeah, when Robert I was younger. Schimmel. Yeah, yeah, and he was he was so funny, and he was like dark, and and but he was a real sweet dude. And um, when I did live at Gotham, which was a Comedy Central like ten minute set yeah, kind yeah. of show. The night that I went on, he was the host and um, I had worked with him before. So when I saw him, I was like, oh, hey, Bob, I worked with you in Brea. And he was like, oh, he was real sweet about it. And we weren't like, it wasn't like this, the guy I toured with. I just done a weekend with him. He goes up there and Comedy Central told him to um, do clean. And and for people who don't know, Robert Schimmel was filled like so dirty so he's doing like all stuff that he doesn't do and the other comedians are going up and bombing (laughs) people are bombing and i'm going last 
So it's so much worse because you're just watching comic after comic bomb. And so your anxiety is just peaking and building. Yeah. And I would see him between comedians and it went from like, ooh, to like, what is happening? So right before he goes um, to bring me up, I'm just like, oh man, I just saw like six people bomb. Well, he goes back on stage and he does 10 minutes and just does his stuff filthy. Yeah. Like absolutely filthy. And, and it's his wheelhouse. It's what yeah, he does. Yeah. And he's murdering. And it changes like the whole feeling. And then he comes off and he goes, I did that for you, kid. And I was like, ah, that was like the, the best feeling. And then I got up there and I had like, you know, a way Actually, better set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's really nice. Um, uh, do you have advice? What advice would you give it to an, an aspiring comedian? Don't. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a broken record at this point with it, but I just, you know, there is like, I've said it, it's probably in my book. I've said it in interviews, but like, there's no fucking shortcut and there's yeah. no secret advice. Yeah. Like there are no secrets. There, there is nothing that I could say to you that will help you become a better comedian other than the fact that you should do what you think you should do. Um, the mistakes will ultimately lead, like lead you to figuring out their mistakes, you know, doing, if you think you should do impressions, go do impressions, dude. Um, you want to say the N word a lot, go have fun with it. You know, (laughs) say, say that, see how it works. Um, but the point is if you wanted to fucking be a tennis pro, you just know Mm -hmm. you got to play a lot of tennis. Like, why do you not think that for standup? Like, guess what you have to do a lot of stand-up it means that like if there's a bar show or a backyard show or a show in a fucking van you go do it because you you need all the stage time and mic time you can get yeah um you should jot all kinds of shit down that runs through your head man like and if if a lot of it is bullshit that's part of it like part of it is fucking up a lot and saying things that don't work because that leads you to what works. Yeah. Um, and then last one, uh, is there a joke that you have that you thought was really funny? You did it on stage once, maybe an amount of times, but it, it never worked or it never worked how you thought it would. Maybe you dropped it, and but you'll go to your grave being like, that was funny. Everyone was wrong. That was it. There's versions of this where like there's the joke where you had a joke and it worked um, to a degree, but it didn't work as well as you wanted. So you abandon it and you bring it back and now it works better. I've had a bit that I shot on disgraceful. And then in the edit, I cut it. Um, It was a story. Mm -hmm. I brought it back for the next tour. I shot it on ball hog. I cut it. I have done it maybe 25%. So not as much yeah. on this tour. So I don't, I don't do it all the time. And I've, I've sat there and going like, am I going to shoot it when I shoot this special and cut it again? Or am I going to release it? Um, it's three minutes. It's like three to four minutes. Like it's a whole thing. And it has, 
a ton of jokes in it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. To me, it's like, it's funnier if I shot it again in November, I'm shooting another special in November and I cut it. Cause then it would be on three different fucking specials that I've shot and cut. Um, it, yeah. And, in some ways what's funniest about it is that you keep on not yeah. using it, but how do you put that into the joke? Yeah. The, the funny, like I will say this when I, when I shot it in ball hog, I was glad because it had improved mm -hmm. when I did it on this tour. It's even better and it has more jokes now. So it is kind of like at its like I can't make it better now. Like it feels like this is yeah, yeah. what it is. Um I almost feel like if I should shoot it for sure. And then if I cut it, tell Netflix, like, you gotta let me just fucking upload this or something. You know? Yeah, you gotta release all three. That's just fascinating to be like, this is yeah. how a thing gets better. This is like yeah. for so few of you will care about this, but like to yeah. me, this is so interesting. Yeah, it would be fucking hilarious. Can you say the vague subject matter so people know if they see it? Uh, the vague subject matter is um, uh, sleeping with a woman when I'm studying abroad. Great. Keep yeah. her eyes peeled for that next special man yeah and it was fucking it's a dicey story i should not have done it <laughs> i'm lucky to be here uh that is it thank you so much that's the that's the interview thank you so much for doing it thanks for having me that's it for another episode of good one you can watch all of tom's specials on netflix you can purchase his book i'd like to play alone wherever books are sold you can get your mom's house and two bears, one cave, wherever you listen. Follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Segura and on Instagram at Segura Tom. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gun Shrigishin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to Stetson hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. 
Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 